If you have a Bible, let's turn to Revelation chapter 3, page 1029, if you want to use one of the hardback Bibles around you. Um, if you're new to uh, our church or you're just dropping in, and bring you up to speed. Um, for the season of Epiphany, for about seven weeks now, we've been looking at the letters from Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And uh, I've never actually heard a sermon series on these epistles that our Lord wrote, and I've always kind of wanted to do it. So we've been really um, diving into it, and we, uh, we've got two more weeks to go. So thank you for sticking with us. I know everyone loves the book of Revelation. That's been a fun thing for me to learn more about. Uh, just to bring you up to speed on the churches we've covered so far, the first one was the church of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And, you know, we can kind of say they were the careless church. They worked hard. They, they actually did a lot. But Jesus says they lost their love. And it's the, probably the letter to the seven churches that is the most well-known because it is our, uh, our temptation is to just work, 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 and to not do it from a place of love. The second church we looked at was Smyrna, which is the crown church. Jesus actually didn't have a correction for the church. They were being persecuted, and he said uh, that he knew what they were going through and that if they persevered, he'd reward them. And the third church we looked at was the church of Pergamum, and they were the compromising church. They, there were some people in their fellowship that had kind of strayed from God's way, and they were leading others kind of pretty violently away from Christ and his gospel and the people in the church who knew better wouldn't say anything. Jesus thought that was a pretty big offense and wrote to them. Then the week after that, we um, kind of looked at if Jesus were to write a letter to our church, what would that look like? And so we kind of had a vision Sunday, so to speak, and we shared our ministry plan, which kind of looks at, hey, for 2019, what do we really sense the Lord doing? I want to encourage you, if you didn't get one of these in the mail or you missed that Sunday, there's some in the back table. And this page right here kind of tells you um, at least some of the main areas we feel the Lord um, leading us to give our attention to. Um, the top one being addressing our facility needs, um, finding a, a, a bigger space, and then also kind of working on kids' ministry. And so um, if, you, if you're new and you're like, what's this church about? What, what's happening this year? This is really the best way that you can get to know that. And then there's also um, a financial update on the back. So we've got a couple of those left if you haven't, if you haven't looked at that. And then uh, last week, I was blessed with the flu. And so uh, Bishop Sandy uh, stepped in and taught on uh, the letter to the church of Thyatira, which was the corrupt church. They worked hard and had love, but they tolerated false teaching. It's not a good thing. So today we look at the church in Sardis. And then we'll have two more churches to look at after this. We'll be done. So I'm going to read. We've got six verses to look at. And I'll start in verse 1 of chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember them, what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot 
his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A pretty easy to pretty easy letter to unpack. So the um, the church of Sardis basically thought that their best days were behind them. That's kind of how I'd paraphrase what's going on in this church. Um, they were asleep. They were dead. They were kind of weak and feeble. And, and Jesus says, "Hey, you've got this great reputation." Um, and everyone kind of thinks you're a great church, but I, I know the reality. You're dead. It's pretty crazy. And so um, whenever I first entered ministry in 2002, about 17 years ago, I think, if I did math right, I can't do math in front of people. It's, it's a thing. Um, I went to this conference, and I, I don't really remember anything, but I remember one thing, and this the speaker shared this great little grid that I've never forgotten, and he said, um, if your church is not in, if it, if your church stops inclining, it is soon to recline. And if, when you're reclining, you're soon to decline. It was a great little, little picture. And so um, I think you could apply that to everything. You could probably apply that to your finances or your health, your career, your relationships, your spiritual life with the Lord, um, in, a, in your church is... Um, if you're not inclining or, or growing or, or stepping forward, um, you know, physics says an object in motion tends to stay in motion, an object at rest tends to stay at rest. And so just naturally, you're going you're gonna to recline. And if you recline, you're soon to decline. So I always thought that was a helpful for like 17 years. I've always thought of that. Like the cost of not, you know, the cost of not being on your toes is really high um, because you don't, you don't just take a rest. You, you can decline. So here's the deal. For us, we're, this June will be seven years old. And I think our best days are not behind us, in front of us. And um, my, uh, my leadership style, if you know the strengths finders, um, like my number one strength is activator, which basically says, when can we start? Like I, I, do, I do not like to wait around on starting new things. And then uh, my second strength is command. I have no problem taking charge and taking lead. And my third strength is future. Like when I was a kid, I loved the Jetsons, hated the Flintstones. I love the idea of the future. Disney World, my favorite land is Tomorrowland. I love the idea of the future. So, um, so I, I don't know that our temptation is like, hey, we're going to, with like how God's gifted me in our new church, I don't think we're going to sit around and like celebrate yesteryear because that's just not our nature. So what I'd like to do is use um, the Church of Sardis, this, this whole thing of like, it's, Churches should stay looking forward and not just living on the past investments. So I want to use that language to jump off and talk about an area of our ministry that I think can have a big impact 20, 30, 40 years down the road, or even more than that. So a couple of weeks ago, we did Vision Sunday, which is like, hey, in 2019, what's this look like for us, which is like a 12-month view. I want to uh, get an airplane and go a little bit higher, and I want us all to, to think about, and I want to invite you to think with us, even if you're new, because um, we often don't do this, is what could we do today that'll have a lasting impact in multiple decades, which is like such a work of faith to do. So um, for a couple of months, a lot of people in our church have been working. So many coffees and lunches and conversations and evenings have been spent around this idea. And um, Jose, it really helped us put together a tool. So 
You thought you were coming to church today, and you did, but you're also coming to a worldwide premiere of this incredible little short video that we've made that's going to introduce us to this idea of investing for 20, 30 years. So we're going to turn the lights down, and uh, there you go, yeah, little John Mark McMillan. I'm going to try this again. We're going to turn the lights down, we're going to watch like a three, four minute video, and then we'll resume. Let's hit it. Kids ministry is one of those areas that a church can't afford to get wrong. Loving, serving, teaching, spending time with the kids that are in our life, in our church life, is one of the most crucial and important thing a church can give their attention to. And it makes sense as Christians because this is totally Jesus' example. If you think about it, Jesus was a 30-year-old single dude with 12 buddies who was a construction worker never married, never had kids, and yet how he taught about kids and how he treated children that were brought to him has radically revolutionized the way our world treats children. There's a radical idea in the ancient world that kids have dignity and value. In fact, you can legitimately say that in the 1950s, Walt Disney was able to dream about a magic kingdom for kids because first in the ancient world, Jesus, this construction worker rabbi, spoke about a spiritual kingdom available to children. Parenting is super joyful, but it can also be back-breaking work. And that's why we need each other. That's why parents need community to encourage one another and to get people to come alongside me and, and help me in my parenting. Um, and so that's why it was a super easy transition for us coming to the gathering. Not only do I know that my daughter is getting truth and, and getting the word, but also she's surrounded by people who love her and people who have made an effort to get to know her and get to know her little idiosyncrasies and um, they've almost every week they've come and told me about um, Emma said this and oh Emma's doing that and it's been very encouraging so that I can encourage her and in who she is as a person um, and it's been a huge blessing for my family. When we started the church in 2011 all we had was six friends and 600 bucks. We didn't have any kids and we didn't ha even have a building. We just would meet outside in parks and in restaurants and people's homes. Now, all these years later, there are more than 20 kids that come and worship with us to learn about Jesus. And our vision as a church is to continue to create safe space and a welcoming space so that we can sow seeds and plant seeds and invest the love of Jesus into the hearts and minds of these little ones. That's really one th huge thing that the Lord has called our church to do. And it takes every adult, every adult has this role and responsibility. Even if you're single, even if you're an empty nester, even if you're married without kids, um, God's call is for us to be like Jesus. That's what Christian means, to be a little Christ. And Jesus didn't have kids. And so even if you don't have kids or even if the kids have left the nest, you still have this responsibility that God has given all of us to care for the kids that are around us. I know that it's easy 
to make investments in the things that are right in front of us or to think about the here and now, but to make investments into the lives of our kids is to make these 20, 30, 40 year old investments that we might not even see the return on until we meet Christ face to face. But trust me, it's worth it. How about that? We're going to put that on YouTube and get like a million hits in two days. It'd be great. Showed it to someone and they said, this makes us look like a real church. <laughs> well, I hope so. Man. Um, there you go. So I, I could easily go to uh, a, a number of passages where Jesus taught, where he taught about kids. Uh, you know, he says, let, let the little children come to me. He says, um, if you want to be light, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you got to be like one of these kids. What's kind of amazing about that is no rabbi had ever used kids as an illustration for salvation because the, the common thought of kids in the ancient world was that they're a burden, they're a threat to the estate, um, they're kind of a nuisance. And today we kind of worship kids. You know, we have this Disney version of kids, and, and most people uh, like idolize their children. Um, and, and so we, we kind of have a loving relationship with children, but in the ancient world, it wasn't that case. So when Jesus says kids can come to him, and when he touches children, and when he uses children as positive illustrations, it's like this radical countercultural uh, teaching method. So we go there. Uh, there's a, a couple of books that I would highly recommend if this is like, I don't buy it, or if this is interesting to you. Uh, this is one of the best books I've read on just the, the effect of Jesus. It's called Who Is This Man by John Ortberg. And um, it's a look at the historical effect of Jesus. So he look, takes a look at how did the ancient world tr uh, view women, and then because of these things that Jesus did and said, here's, here's the effect of how um, we've changed. Um, he does that with kids. He does that with art. He does that with architecture. He does that with language. It's pretty amazing that um, most of the, the languages of the Western world are built on, uh, on the, the works of Christian Christians, it talks about music. You know, Jesus is the only person who has their own Grammy category, gospel music, pretty amazing. And uh, so anyways, um, uh, if you're looking for a book that would just um, make your heart come alive with just real concrete evidence of the last 2,000 years of the effect of the positive aspects of the church, uh, this would be a great book. Um, there's another book that you could uh, uh, do, and this I've actually met the author and had a couple of conversations with him. This book's called Faithful Presence by David Fitch, and he talks about the seven disciplines that um, kind of shape our life, and he talks about communion. When you're faithful to communion, um, there's a way of we experience God's presence there. When you're faithful to resolving conflict biblically, you tend to feel God's presence. Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered, and the context of Matthew 18 is not a poorly attended Bible study, but of two people working out the hatchet. He says, I'll be there. Um, when you're with the poor, when you serve the least of these, you feel God's presence. Another one is when you're with kids, um, you feel God's presence. Uh, this is crazy. They have a church plant around Chicago, and they make it a requirement for every adult to um, volunteer in the kids' ministry once a quarter. And if you don't do it, it doesn't matter how rich you are or how powerful you are, they won't make, let you be a member. Like, that's kind of... We're not going to do that, but, but like, that's how powerful it is. So it's, that's a great book I'd recommend. There's another book. Um, I haven't read it, but it comes highly recommended. It's called When Children Became People um, by Owen Blake, and it's um, a historical look at, at this change of how over time we began to 
to value kids as actual people and, and value the sanctity of their life um, because of the teachings and the way that this single man in the first century who didn't have kids did. It's really, I mean, when you think about that Jesus didn't have children and yet um, Walt, Walt Disney would not even be able to have a thing without this effect of Jesus. So, so I recommend a couple of those books to you. Um, what, I, what I'd like to do is to share um, uh, my testimony. Uh, Adriana, I'm going to throw a curveball. Will you throw up the call to worship that we did? This is great. We didn't plan this. This is totally the anointing of the overalls. <laughs> Look at this. This is great. Um, I love this first line. Come in here, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I want to tell you what God has done for my soul. About a month ago, I, you can take that off. About a month ago, I, I woke up around 2 in the morning. It was January 16th. And there's times where I wake up and I go back to bed, and there's times where I wake up and I know the Lord's wanting to speak to me. And usually I fight for about 30 minutes. I'm like, fine, he wins. And so I, I drug myself downstairs, made a cup of coffee, and I, I sat in um, my chair. And from about 2 to about 6 a.m., the Lord, about a month ago, began to share with me um, what, I'm, what I'm sharing with you here and began to bring up a ton of memories. And, you know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a feeler or crier, but I was like going through Kleenexes like crazy and just bawling and crying and really felt the Lord say, I, I want you to share this, this, and this, and this with, with the church. And so for a month, I've kind of had this sermon uh, written out. Um, and I want to share a piece of my story that I, I haven't really shared um, actually, I don't think I've ever shared it publicly. I think I've maybe shared it two or three times in some private settings. Um, partly because it's a difficult, um, but also partly just I don't necessarily want certain things um, recorded and on the internet for all to hear. So, um, but I feel like the Lord's saying to share it. So, my my uh, my family's from New England. Um, I they grew up on in Cape Cod and the Boston, New Bedford, Hyannis area, and my grandfather worked for JFK. Uh, he was like an upholsterer for the Kennedy family. And in the late 70s, my grandparents came down to North Texas, to Wichita Falls, and they were surprised at the warm weather and how cheap it was to live in Texas as opposed to New England. So they go back to New England, and they tell all my family, hey, we're moving to Texas because this snow sucks, and we're tired of you know the price of living up here. And so my whole family, my parents... My, my older siblings, my aunt and uncles, cousins, my grandparents, they all moved to North Texas in uh, 1978. Well, my family didn't have a lot of money. My mom's disabled. My dad, none of my parents went to college. And my, my, um, I'm the youngest of five kids. And so um, our family moved to a trailer park on the very, very far east side of the town. And across the street from the trailer park was an Assemblies of God church. And one Saturday, the AG church went across the street to do an outreach to the trailer park, and they met my parents. My parents grew up in a Roman Catholic church. They had major issues with the theology of it and with kind of the practice of it. And so they weren't really going to church. They really didn't want to do it anymore. And, but this Pentecostal church invited my, my parents to come to church. So they went across the street, and like the music really blew them away, and they felt this love. And it was like the first time that my, my parents um, didn't feel like people were looking down on them because they were poor. It was just like they were treated just like the richest person in their room. And, and they didn't have that experience um, in New England. And so it's just this church just kind of captivated my family. And eventually they hired my dad to be the custodian. And so I grew up in this Assemblies of God church with my dad being the janitor 
And we were there every time the doors were open because it was his job to unlock them. And so um, I, I kind of grew up um, like that. Um, so I, I want to um, share, uh, so I'll hold that. And I, I want to go to the side and I want to share something else. Okay, so a couple years ago I read this book called Fathered by God by John Eldridge. If you're a dude and you've never read this book, you're sinning. You need to go read this book. If you're a mom and you have boys, you need to read this book. Um, he paints this like healthy way of how God desires to grow men. And um, there's so much in our culture about masculinity right now, um, but this is such a, a wonderful read on how um, our Heavenly Father desires to father um, young men. And so I was reading it, and he gives this framework of these stages of the masculine journey. And they're so true. So let's go to this next slide. Um, and he, he outlines, and trust me, I'm going somewhere with this. He outlines these six stages. In that first, um, God grows us up by letting us be a boy. The point of boyhood is we get to play in the safety of our mom and dad's shadow. You know, we have uh, wars, we have, you know, but, but they're make-believe. We, we have guns, but they're Nerf guns. We, we have, you know, you, you, you take a, you take, Weapons away from boys, they pick up sticks and they're lightsabers. I mean, like there's just something about boys and pretend play. Um, and really, um, it's just about being innocent and play and fun. You know, and then at some point in your life, you kind of transition to the cowboy stage. This is probably late teens, early 20s, where you want to continue to play but add some risk. So the typical person graduating high school, going on a backpacking trip in Europe for the summer is like the total cowboy move. Like, I want to go and have some fun. It's a little dangerous, but it's not going to war. You know, that's kind of the cowboy stage. Generally around 30, um, it's time for a man to figure out what his fight is. And, and, and in a positive sense, um, like, like what, has, um, what has God put this boy on the earth to fight for the good of humankind? right? And, and learn kind of what it looks like to go to, to battle um, for the good of people. And then there's the lover stage. Now, and what's interesting is that the lover stage should, all, should come after the warrior because there's no, there's no use in being a lover if you don't know how to fight for the woman's heart or fight to protect her. There's so much wounding in the world from boys who know how to shave and have sex and think they're lovers, but they've never learned how to be a warrior. That'll pre. You can tweet that. I came up with that. All right. <laughs> then, then later in life, around maybe your late mid forties or fifties, you become a king, and you become like really, really, really good at what you do, and you're kind of leading at that point. And then later in your life, you become the sage or Yoda for you Star Wars fans, or you turn around and you start to coach the next generation. So that's. Uh, and I'm sure there's a female equivalent, but I'm a dude, and this is what I know. And so, um, what's what what. Eldridge outlines is that the order is so important, okay? So I'll keep this up here. This, uh, uh, you need to know, know this about me. Um, I, so I'm the youngest of five. Only parent working as a janitor. I had a ton of health issues. I, the doctors thought I was going to be a bubble boy because I had a, such a severe case of asthma um, growing up. And so there was all these medical expenses, and there was just a lot of financial pressure on our home. And um, I just always knew as a kid, you know, like there's never enough, and and um, and there was just a lot of there was never peace. Like our home was never peaceful. And in the fifth grade, one night I uh, woke up in the middle of the night. And my parents kind of always fought. It, it never got physical, but they they were just always 
yelling at each other, you know, holes would be punched in the sheetrock, dishes would break, you know, that was kind of the environment. And it felt like it was always on the, on the tip of boiling over and going crazy, but it never got there. It was always, they, they would always back down. Well, one night, I was fifth grade, woke up at two in the morning, heard my parents screaming, and it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, I heard danger in my mom's voice. And so I go, and I see lights um, on in the room. And I walk in, I see uh, my mom on the floor, and my dad is on top of her, and she's spitting in his face. And my first thought as a kid is, like, my dad's beating my mom. And so I, I love my mom. I jumped on my dad's back, and I try to wrangle him over. And then I saw a knife on the floor. And what I quickly learned was my mom was trying to kill herself. My dad was um, restraining her and keeping her from doing it. And I walked in on that as a boy. I, I tell you that because that's the day the boy died in me. And that's the day I became a warrior and I began to fight. And there's several times where the same thing happened. One, one Sunday morning, it was pills. I walked in. My mom's trying to overdose on a bunch of pills. Um, one time, my senior year in high school, I was going to work. My dad called me and said, can't go to work today, you need to go home and keep your mom from doing something stupid. And, and so from fifth grade on, I've kind of always been on suicide watch with my, with my mom. And um, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a feelings person. I, I, I'm like tough. And if you know me, you, you know that that's true. And, and this is, I think, one reason why. is as, as elementary school, I was exposed to some pretty dark stuff in my family. It wasn't my fault. I had nothing to do with, and I had a choice, um, and, and the choice was to, um, to fight and to, to try to survive. Um, that, day, that, that, that first instance, um, I remember going to school the next day. My, my, all the kids were in school. My dad's at work. My mom's home, and all day, fifth grade, I just thought as a kid, uh, who's going to stop her? She's home by herself, and uh, that's all I could think about. I, I failed a test. The teacher pulled me aside, and um, I got in trouble because I couldn't focus. And just all day, like my five, fifth-grade-year-old brain just couldn't stop thinking about what would happen when I got home. And school let out 2.45. I'd go out to the playground, and usually my mom was the first, second, or third person in the pickup line. She wasn't there. And 4 o'clock comes by. I'm the last kid on the playground. No cars. Teachers are coming out and saying, hey, where's, you know, do you need a ride or... And I, I'm sitting there on, on, a, on the playground thing, like, I don't have a mom. I mean, I, and, I, and then my, my next thought was, how am I going to get home? And I start going into, okay, how am I going to walk home? I don't know anyone's number. I can't call. And I'm in fifth grade believing in my pl- on the playground that, I don't, that she did it. And um, eventually she shows up, and she's a basket case crying. I don't know what happened. still don't know what happened. And we go home and pretend like nothing happened. And that was my upbringing. And, uh, and still to this day, I struggle with the effects of that. I mean, you don't get over that pretty quickly. I've been to counseling many times. I mean, in the last year, I've gone and, and talked to people several times um, just because there's just, there was this massive wound that happened to me when I was in elementary school. And um, you don't just act like it didn't happen. So here's the great thing. Here's God's grace in all that. Here's what God's done for my soul. Is the, the church hired my dad to be the janitor. And so our butts were in church every Sunday. 
And so we had Sunday school at 9, and then at 10.15 we'd release, and then we had kids' church at 10.30. And so I, I, don't, I can't remember a Sunday where I wasn't in church growing up. Like, that's just what we did. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, we were always at church. And the, the grace of that is for at least two and a half hours a week, I was around adults who loved Jesus, who loved one another, who were healthier than I'd ever seen. They loved me and they cared for me. And um, they weren't destructive. And uh, I, I want to tell you their names. Um, my, the, the first people I remember is Mikey and Grady Smith. Um, they were, this is them. And um, they remind me a lot of Mickey and Cindy. I hope that's, that's, a good, that's a great compliment. Because they were in their early 60s. They were empty nesters. They didn't have kids at home. But they taught Sunday school for first graders, first through fifth grade. And I remember, uh, you know, Mickey, uh, not Mick, Mikey. See, the names are even similar. <laughs> Mikey's her name. She would be up at the front, and she was this, this, this you know, beautiful little petite woman, and she would teach. And I learned about Jonah and the well and Peter walking on water. I remember thinking, like, stupid Peter, why'd you take your eyes off Jesus, you know? And uh, I, I learned about all kinds of stuff from Mikey. And Grady was the sheriff in town. And so he would sit in the back with his Wranglers and a blazer and had his cowboy hat, and I saw his gun one time. And I guarantee you, there was not a Sunday school that was better in line than that one. <laughs> I mean, we were on lockdown. And I just, I just, to this day, I remember noticing how they would talk to each other with grace and with love and without cynicism and without negativity. I just, I just remember going, that's weird. A husband and a wife relating to each other in peace. That's, that's just, what would that, that be like, you know? And I, and I just, I mean, first grade, and I just see this example. Um, who's the next, what's the next picture? Um, right after them, I think Ray and Donna, yeah, Ray and Donna um, taught my Sunday school class whenever I was in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. What's crazy about Ray and Donna is that they had, at the time, they had, their 30s, they had like a baby, like an, an infant, a toddler, and then, um, I think their youngest son, or the oldest son, Justin, was about to go to kindergarten, and yet they were teaching junior hires. It was crazy. And Ray and Donna taught us, taught me about tithing. They taught me about peer pressure and sexual purity, and were just this, like, just constant presence. Uh, Ray worked in construction. He, had, he owned a, a concrete company, and his hand was like one giant blister. And I remember always shaking his hand, and it felt like sandpaper, and it's like, wow, that's a hardworking man, you know? And they, they, were, they were so great. Um, the, the next, in kids' church, um, Randy Case was this, uh, was this guy. There's Randy from, that's his high school pit. He'd kill me if I knew I was showing it to you. <laughs> and uh, Randy was a single guy in college going to, going to school to be a pediatrician, and he volunteered in kids' church. And Randy is the first person that I remember seeing the joy of the Lord in. Like he just had this, he's probably a seven, you know, he just had this, this joy and this energy and this, this carefree spirit. And, I, and he didn't have kids and was, didn't have a girlfriend. He, you know, his struggle was like, he really wanted to get married. And we were always trying to like pair him up with somebody. And uh, the next person was uh, Kendra Martin. She was a single girl also in, in college. We tried to pair them up. They, they never went on a date. We never understood it. And uh, Kendra was like really thoughtful. I remember she just... 
her faith was really personal, but really well thought through. Reminds me of, of Christina a lot. Like they had the same personality type. And I just, I just remember feeling so loved by this, this older woman who loved Jesus and just had just kindness and kindness and kindness towards us as kids and, and had a good, um, good effect on me. Uh, Stephanie v- Van Pay was, was my, uh, my kids' pastor. She was um, the first person that asked me to volunteer at church. Um, there was a need. We didn't have a salmon that day. And, and I was like in sixth grade and like wiggling in my chair. And she said, hey, uh, Drew, do, um, do you, would you want to run sound today? And I was like, yeah. And so I got my start serving the church by running sound um, because she invited me to do that. And, and she also had the joy of the Lord. I've seen Stephanie at like five in the morning and she is that joyful. She is, uh, without exaggeration, the nicest person you'll ever meet. Um, so much so people meet her and think she's fake. Like everyone meets her like, you're fake. She, I've seen her at five in the morning. She's not fake. And, uh, and she was really like a, like a big sister slash mom to me. And um, just really cared for me in a lot of ways. And then there was, I don't have a picture of her. Um, uh, Bebo uh, passed away a few years ago. But she, um, she would dress up as this clown. And uh, once a month, Bubbles, the clown, would come to church and would make like balloon animals and give out candy. And every kid loved Bubbles the Clown. Uh, like uh, Almost every kid loved Bubbles the Clown. I did not love <laughs> Bubbles the Clown. Um, I believe in demons because of Bubbles the Clown. <laughs> I mean, there's two things I don't do, snakes and demons, or snakes and clowns. Snakes and clowns, I don't do They're both from the pit of hell. And I share that, I share that information with you in vulnerability. Don't, don't you dare try to scare me with snakes or clowns. Um, we will send you to Oak Hills and let Max Okada deal with you. We will export you out of here if you try to use that against me. Um, but I, I remember, I remember Bebo, so th- I share all that with you because in the midst of a, of a very, very um, tragic uh, childhood, life could have gone a number of ways for me. But every weekend, I was surrounded by a lot of different types of people who loved Jesus, loved one another, they loved me as a kid. I wonder if they knew in the moment that the seeds they were planting in my little heart as a kid would bear fruit 30 years later. I, I mean, here's the reality. If God has ever used me or used something I did or said to bless you and to help you spiritually, I don't think it would have happened without Ray and Donna and Mikey and Grady and Randy and Kendra and that dumb clown. And, you, you know, like, God used all those people in different life stages to show this kid in fifth grade that Jesus loves him and that he has abundant life for him. And, and you're reaping the, the spiritual benefits of people in Wichita Falls in the 80s and 90s that every week, instead of going to brunch where there's mimosas, they went to kids' ministry and served and invested. And so I... You know, I could share with you theologically, here's why we should love kids. And I felt like I'm a living testimony of, you know, and there's an article last week in the news about churches who get their relationship with kids wrong, and it's awful. Um, I'm an example of when the church gets it right, when the church takes a kid who is suffering some sort of abuse and actually says, we're going to rally around this child, and we're going to love and support and care and nurse them. So... Um, 
for all the ways we get it wrong as, a, as churches, we also get it right sometimes. So um, here's what our, um, in December, we were talking about this as a leadership team, and, and Mickey asked me, he said, well, Drew, what's the wins for our kids' ministry? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> it's a good question. We thought about that. We've talked a lot about that. And these are the three wins for me. Is the first win, here's how we know we're doing it good, is that kids feel safe. There's really no use doing anything if a kid doesn't feel safe. And so Gathering Midtown, our desire is every kid who walks in this place, whether that's an infant or a teenager, that they would feel this is a safe place. This is a place of health. They, they sense peace and gentleness, and they sense the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, second one is that they would learn. You know, we want to do more than babysitting. You know, we want to teach kids about Jesus and the third, this is the one that's more compelling to me, is that when kids leave high school and leave the nest, my desire is that because of the work we do now, that they would continue to joyfully follow Jesus. That in 20, 30 years, we'd be able to say, you know, Emma is following Jesus, Moira is following Jesus, Jude is following Jesus, Hayden and Grayson better be following Jesus, you know? <laughs> so... To me, that's like, what does it look like to sow seeds 20, 30 years? And it's, it's the little ones that are upstairs or in the back around here is that really we have an opportunity to think decades ahead and say, I mean, the world's going to be awful <laughs> in 20 or 30 years. The best we can do is like shape and love and serve um, kids so that there's a little bit of hope. So um, here's what I'm going to do. make a slight number of changes. Uh, next week, what we're going to start doing is we're going to um, encourage and ask that all the parents would have their kids downstairs during the worship time. And I know many already kind of do that, but I want to invite all, all kids um, to come down during the music. Um, we've always wanted to do that, and when we tried to do it before, um, the kids were like, you know, 18 months old, and it was a nightmare <laughs> for the parent, parents. Like, this is stressful. But now that our kids are getting a little bit older, they, you know, like my kids, every time we get in the truck, they ask, Daddy, play Build My Life, and then I put on Build My Life, and, and then I'll hear my five- and four-year-old singing loudly, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I'm telling you, like, one of these days I'm going to figure out how to record them without getting in a wreck, you know? Because it is the greatest experience as a parent to hear my kids ask for a worship song and then know the words and sing it. Incredible. And so having our kids around us during worship, I think, is going to help that. It'll also give those who are volunteering in kids' ministry a chance to be down and to be part of worship. Because sometimes I know you can, be, um, you can feel disconnected because you're coming and you go straight upstairs and you don't see who's here and you don't get to be a part of worship and you really don't care about the sermon anyway. And so we're, we're going to thank you for not amening. Um, so, so next week we're going to just encourage, hey, kids, stay downstairs during worship. Parents, we understand there's wiggles. We don't care. We'll crank it up. And then after um, the passing of the peace, all the kids will kind of go upstairs together, and it'll give everybody, whether you're serving or not, an opportunity to be a part of worship. And if, if that's a problem, you know, I can recommend 4,000 other churches in the city you can go to. Just kidding. But seriously. Um, next is this little packet. It's, um, we, we hijacked the name Little Liturgy from Becca. Thank you. Um, we're not going to get into it, but I, I'd love for you to take this and read it. Um, really what I want your, um, what we'd want you to take away from is that 
there is a lot of spiritual intentionality behind what we're doing with our kids when they're down here and when they go upstairs is that their time will be very similar to our time here so that when they get to the age of coming with all the adults, it's not like a change of world, you know? Um, also, even if you don't have kids, this is really helpful because you'll, you'll probably know somebody who wants to come to our church who has kids. And if they say, well, what do they do for kids ministry? If you had taken five minutes to read this, you'll be able to say, oh man, they take this super seriously. Um, you know, Google is beating you right now, but you are our best form of advertisement. And so um, it's my desire that every adult would kind of be somewhat familiar with what we do with our children so that you'd be able to tell other people and talk about the cover girl on this like cover. I mean, it's amazing. All right. And then last, we're really close to hiring a, a kids pastor. We're like 98% there. We've got a few more uh, uh, dots and eyes and all that stuff. But hopefully pretty soon, we'll be able to share with you um, some great news of who God sent to serve our kids. So that's a little um, vision for 20, 30 years. Hope that was helpful to you. And uh, glad I didn't ball. Like I was gonna cry a lot. So success. All right. Um, thank you. No homework. This is like the only. Uh, I don't want. You know, I should make up some homework for you. So. Um, oh, here's the homework. Read little liturgy and pray for our kids. How about that? You should do that. All right.